This is a dangerous question to ask you. What is your favorite part of a sermon? If you're asking me, honestly, my favorite part is the end. You know it's all true about you two. Your favorite part is the very last word. Um, and I'm kind of joking there, kind of, kind of joking. But I always love the very end of a message because it's all coming together. I'm starting to understand everything perfectly. All of the themes, all of the application, the truths, they're all kind of starting to overlap and come together. And that's kind of why I'm kind of drawn to the end of the books, particularly the letters of the Bible. And that's the series that we're in. We're in this series uh, for two more weeks here. We're in this series called Best for Last, where we're just jumping right to the end of the book and trying to just kind of get our arms around the entire letter all at once through the form of studying something called a benediction. And if you're in Hebrews 13, you see that bold heading that's not inspired but helpful for navigation. It's called benediction. That's where we're going to be. Um, Hebrews 13, 20. Um, this is the second to last message, the second to last message. So uh, two weeks from now, when we have our final message, that'll be your favorite because everything's coming together right there at the end, right? Uh, so let's uh, read this benediction and then we'll get into it. Uh, verse 20 says this, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, May that God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a reminder for you, when I say benediction, I, I have a specific definition in mind. A benediction or a doxology is a responsive prayer slash praise to God that is aimed to produce God's exaltation in your heart and sin's excommunication in your heart, right? It's aimed to increase God's worship and praise. And when God is worshiped and praised in your heart, sin cannot remain in your heart. Your heart is not hospitable to sinful desires. Your life is not hospitable to sin when God's praise is deeply rooted in your heart. So that's what we're going for here. Uh, my message here tonight, I just want to, to help you to exalt, to delight, to rejoice in the peace of God. I want this to, to, to compel you to worship and praise God. Why? Because I want worship to be deeply rooted in your life. And I want sin to be rooted out of your heart and out of your life. And that's what we're going to talk about today in this benediction. It's a benediction about the peace of God. You saw it there in the title, the peace of God. Or you could say it this way as a title. This is a benediction for the peace of God in your heart. Let's look at this. I've got four points on the peace of God. Um, first off, let's talk about the need of God's peace in your life. The need of God's peace in your life. We need to understand, first and foremost, what is going on in this letter. Why does the writer of Hebrews end it emphasizing the peace of God? 
Well, if you were to kind of scan a little bit further down below our passage, you'd see a hint about what kind of a letter this is. In verse 22, the writer of Hebrews says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So notice there, he describes what his letter is. It is a word of exhortation. It is a sermon by a pen because this writer is separated from the congregation that he loves. He, he, he may not be able to physically be with them and exhort them in this way. So he writes them a letter, an exhortation. That's a Bible word for a sermon, exhortation. And he also says, notice he says, bear with. Bear with, this is a word that means listen to, endure this, have a, have a heart and a mind that is ready to think about challenging things. And not maybe necessarily challenging things about a difficult theology, although there is that in Hebrews, but challenging things about your own heart, your own sin, your own life. Prepare yourself to be challenged spiritually. Bear with, endure this message that is challenging to you spiritually. Your soul depends on it. Now, I will remind you, it is very easy, it is very easy to not endure, to not bear with hard messages about you and your sin. Matter of fact, uh, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.3, the time is coming when people will not endure. That's the same word, just negatively. They will not endure sound teaching, but they will have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passion. That's a scary thought, right? And that's a, that's a reality in our world, especially in our church world, right? You can find some sort of a preacher, some sort of a teacher, some sort of a quote-unquote pastor who will support, praise, celebrate whatever sin you want to just go for in your life. But why is that? It's because you don't endure sound teaching, hard teaching about you and sin. You don't, you don't think about sin the way the Bible thinks about sin and commands you to think about sin. You need to bear with this word of exhortation. Now, a few other things about this letter before we move into this benediction. Um, who wrote it? Nobody knows. Matter of fact, you see all the way in the beginning of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, um, no name is given. Usually, Paul would write his name if it was him. James would give his name. Jude would give his name. But no name is given. Actually, I always thought it was kind of interesting. Like in the old King James Version, it always started out with God, who in sundry times and times past, like in those old big archaic words. So it's like God wrote it. That was my conclusion. And it was pretty close. Uh, the Spirit inspired it. But there was an actual physical person who wrote this. We don't know necessarily who it is. I, for one, am not convinced that it was Paul at all. I do know some people that think it was Paul, but I don't think it was Paul. For one, he doesn't mention his name. For two, um, and I'm relying on people that are a little bit smarter than me, it doesn't sound like Paul. They, they would argue that uh, there's some grammatical, uh, lexical word usages that Paul wouldn't use, although we probably don't have enough evidence to really definitively say, I know what Paul sounds like. Uh, but uh, there is also some differences between the way Paul writes and the way this author writes. And there's some interesting uh, differences also in what this author affirms. For example, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he, he says this, 
um, how shall we uh, escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it sounds to me like this author is saying, hey, it was this announced this salvation was announced first by the Lord and was told to us by apostles. And I just don't think that's really the way Paul would say it. Paul would claim to be an apostle. Paul, Paul would even say, I have seen the Lord. I have been taught by him for a long period of time. So I don't think Paul would have said that. So that's kind of why I'm not convinced um, that it was Paul or somebody else. But I do think it was somebody closely connected to Paul. You see there back in chapter 13, verse 23, this person knows Timothy and is planning to see these people with Timothy very soon. So it was probably either Paul I'm speaking in intentionally different language. I've heard somebody suggest that it was Paul because he was trying to reach the Jews and his name was, his name was like fire to Jews. So he was trying intentionally not to name himself. Um, so it was either Paul or somebody connected to Paul, maybe Apollos who was writing this, but ultimately we don't know. Ultimately it was God through the spirit writing to us a message that we need to hear. Um, who, that was who it was from. Who was it to? It was to Jewish Christians. And if you read through Hebrews, you'll quickly understand this was written for someone that knew the Old Testament, that really, really understood their Bibles well and could make these connections between the old system and the new system. It was Jewish Christians. Some of them were genuine Christians. Some of them seemed to be um, convinced about the truths of Christ but not committed to Christ. And some of them seem to be neither convinced or committed to Christ. There's a kind of a, a large congregation or a congregation of different kinds of people in it. These are Jews. If nothing else, they're waffling on Christ. They're not sure if they want to associate with Christ. They're not sure if they want the title Christian written on their back. Why? Well, it's kind of interesting. It appears that they are from Italy, or they are in Italy, in Rome at this time. You you see there in verse 24, actually, of chapter 13, those who come from Italy send you greetings. You could read that two ways. You could either say, hey, those people who have left Italy are writing back to you who are currently in Italy, or you could read it the other way. Hey, those who are in Italy right now send you greetings, so I'm writing to you from Rome, but that's kind of confusing, sorry. But all to say, I think the writer is writing outside of Rome to a congregation of Jewish Christians in Rome. And that's how I would take verse 24 as well. But that actually adds some interesting notes if you think about it. These Jewish Christians then who were living in Rome had already suffered a lot. Matter of fact, we know from history that in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius um, sent out this edict to remove all the Jews from Rome. So as Jews, they had already been kicked out of Rome, and now we're coming back. And we even see, well, regardless of where they were, in chapter 10, that they had encountered lots of suffering already for Christ. They had struggled. Um, they had been publicly exposed to reproach, uh, affliction, um, being harshly treated. Some of them were put into prison. This was way in the past. They already suffered for Christ. And regardless of where they were, they had suffered for Christ. And now, under Nero's persecution, they were facing more suffering from Christ. And maybe what they're thinking here is, man, do we have to go through this again? 
We just suffered back then. Weren't we faithful back then? Why do we have to suffer again? And in the back of their minds, they're thinking, you know what? We used to be Jews. We used to be uh, Jewish in our practices and associated with Jews. Now we're Christians. We used to be that. It, it wouldn't be so hard to just say, hey, hey, we're not Christians, we're, 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 we're Jews. You, you, don't persecute us, we're not Christians, we're just, we're just Jews. They're, they're tempted, it seems like when you read the letter, to just go back, to, to leave Christ, to desert Christ, and go back to the old system of uh, Judaism. Now, what's the problem, though, with leaving Christ? What's the problem with leaving all of the promises of Christ for present comfort? It might bring you present, external, momentary peace in your life, but when you leave Christ, you leave the eternal. You leave the permanent peace in your life. You desert that. If, if, if you leave Christ, it means you are leaving the very peace of God. That's what this writer is going to say, and that's what this letter is all about. The writer just again and again repeats this theme all throughout Hebrews that Jesus Christ is superior. He uses the word better again and again. Jesus is better than anything else, any other religion Judaism especially. Jesus is better than anything. The peace that you possess in Christ is superior than any other peace this world can offer you. Don't leave that. Don't turn your back on that. You'll have no peace. Don't go back to a life of eternal fear for temporary comfort. Hold fast to eternal peace even if it means temporary trouble. How does the author make his point? He does this just basically just a contrast, one big contrast again and again, emphasizing the superiority of Christ. Matter of fact, if we were to do a quick brief outline, you see in the first four chapters, you see that Christ and his person is better, is superior. Christ, his person, his position is superior. In chapter 4 all the way through chapter 7, we see Christ's priesthood is superior. In chapter 8 all the way through halfway through 10, we see Christ's ministry as a priest is superior. And then in 10 all the way through 12, we see our privileges as Christians are superior to any other religion. And then we see in chapter 13 where we are that our behavior as Christians should be superior as well. It's all about Superiority. Christ is better than anything else. Do not leave Christ for anything else. And this brings us back to our benediction. So turn back to 13 if you're there. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Let's talk more about this benediction for God's peace in your life. That's the need of God's peace. That's the need of God's peace that we just talked about. But what about this? The gift of God's peace. The gift of God's peace. After this lengthy and challenging sermon written to these people, this exhortation, the, the, the preacher, pastor now turns to pray and praise the God of peace. Because he, he, wants, he wants these people that are reading this letter to be encouraged. He wants them to see how God can bring peace into their life 
too. He wants you to also experience God's peace. That's why you should listen. He wants you to experience the gift of God's peace. Notice what he says there in verse 20. May the God of peace. That little phrase, of peace, what does that mean? It means the God who brings about or produces peace. The God who brings peace in the lives of his people. This, this suggests many things, wonderful things about our God, especially the God we enjoy in Jesus Christ. Your God is the only source of peace, of true and lasting peace. That is your God. And your God is also the giver of peace, the producer of peace. He is the ultimate source of peace, and he is the ultimate giver of peace. If you need peace in your life, you need this God. You need to understand his message. Let's, let's look at this. Let's look at him as the source, the possessor of peace. He is peace in and of himself. He is completely at peace at all times. God is never worried, never anxious, never troubled, never stirred. He never changes. That's what our Bible tells us. As a matter of fact, in, in Hebrews 1 verse 10, it says he is unchanging. It says this about our God. It says, you Lord, uh, you Lord laid the foundation. Heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will Roll them up like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. God is unchanging. The Lord Jesus Christ is unchanging, too. You see this in 13.8 of our chapter, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. How is that? How is, how is it that he never changes? I change every day. Some of you, young men, have voices that are actively changing right now. He never changes. And it's not because he's disconnected. It's not because he's distant. He is very close. He is peace because he is completely in control at all times. He is peace because he is completely independent. He is not dependent on us for anything at all. You could say it this way. He is sovereign, omnipotent. He, uh, everything concerns him. Everything concerns him. He understands, controls, allows, has purposes and everything. Everything concerns him, and yet he is concerned by nothing. Everything concerns him, but he is not concerned by anything. He is the possessor of peace. But we also have to see here that he is the provider of peace as well, how is he the provider of peace? Well, if you were to just skim through Hebrews and look up every time the word peace or, uh, or uh, something that's similar to peace appears, you'd find an interesting picture of the kind of peace that God provides in your life. Let's just review really quick. He brings to, true pre peace, true peace to your conscience. You know what your conscience is? It's that little thing inside of you that troubles you when you do something wrong, that makes you feel guilty, that makes you feel wrong. And the more you sin, the quieter the conscience gets. And the more you try to please God, the louder your conscience becomes against you. Way over in Hebrews 9.14, it says this, talking about the blood of Jesus Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ 
purify, cleanse our conscience from dead works. Look at that. No amount of works, he's saying. No amount of animal sacrifices, no amount of anything can bring you the peace your conscience, your heart so desperately needs with God. Why? Because you keep sinning. Because these sacrifices don't really seem to cover like they're supposed to. But Jesus' blood is offered through the eternal spirit and doesn't need to be repeated. Uh, Jesus' blood, Colossians 1.20 says has made peace, has made peace for us between God. Our consciences are purified, and we are cleansed. And also, another thing, he doesn't just bring peace to your conscience. We also see in Hebrews, he brings peace to your work, or peace to your perseverance, your endurance. That's what God brings, his peace is to your perseverance. We see also there in 914, Our consciences have been purified from dead works to serve the living God. Look at that. Once once you worked really hard to try to calm down your conscience, to feel accepted to God. He said, maybe if I pray every day, maybe if I go to church every Sunday, maybe if I do all of these good things, my conscience will settle down before me and God. But they didn't do it. It just made your conscience more and more troubled. Once used to work for acceptance before God. Uh, but now, look at he says, you, you are freed from dead works to serve the living God. Once you, you tried to, to serve for acceptance, but now you get to serve from acceptance. Because my conscience is clean by the perfect blood of Jesus, I serve. I can serve the true and living God without anxiety, without worry. Now I can have perseverance because I am confident in the peace that I enjoy with God. And, and I have no worry about maybe one sin that I sin way off in the future being so bad that it will separate from me from his love. No, Christ died once for sin. Matter of fact, it says in Titus 2 that he redeemed you, he saved you, he purchased you to make you his own possession so that you would become a people zealous for good works. You're no longer worried about working your way to God. Now you're eager to please Him. You're you're zealous to live for Him, to serve Him. He brings you peace. He brings you peace, and that brings perseverance. Another thing we learn about the peace of God and how He provides it in our life, He he brings discipline in our life that produces peace. And, and we talked about this a couple of weeks back, but a really good definition of sanctification that is growing in Christ-likeness, growing, growing in holiness, a good definition of sanctification in your life is just one word, peace. Your life is marked, characterized, displays peace. Your life is, is peaceful. Matter of fact, it says this in 12 verse 11. Says it's amazing. Discipline in your life produces God's sometimes difficult treatment with you, produces something called peaceful fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Your life is peaceful. Notice what he says the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Little side note here the world tells you if you want happiness, if you want joy, if you want to feel content, If you want peace in your life, 
You need to find the inner you and unlock you and be free to be yourself. But what does God say? Peace, joy, happiness come into your life through sanctification, through obedience to me. Not trying to work your way to me, but working from acceptance and joy and zeal and delight. That's what brings peace, according to God. And and God's discipline produces peace. And another little side thing here, he transforms you, if you have his peace in your life, from a peace taker to a peace maker. Notice um, chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Notice how peace and holiness, once again, are connected. There's a relationship. Basically this, when you, when you understand that you have received the peace of God in your life, when you understand that God has made peace with you through the blood of Jesus Christ himself, you, you cannot live outside of peace with your fellow believers. That makes no sense to you, right? You have to live a life that rhymes with the great grace that you have been given by God. You have to be a peacemaker because God has been a peacemaker to you. God produces sanctification in your life and you become peaceful, marked by peace. And that is God's great gift of peace. What does a gift mean? It means God gives it to you without charge. It means you have to accept it with an open hand, willing to receive the free gift of God. It is a gift received by grace. That is the gift of God's peace. Let's look at something else. Let's look at the stability. Number three, the stability of God's peace. The point here is basically to just theologically wow you by the power, by the strength, by the endurance, by the stamina of God's peace, the stability of God's peace. God's peace in your life means his strength is for you. His strength is for you. Let's go back to chapter 13, verse uh, 20. Notice what it says there. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, who brought again from the dead. That is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Curiously enough, it is never mentioned, the resurrection, in the whole entire letter of Hebrews. And now he's bringing it up here right at the end, and he actually uses a very strange way to describe it, brought again from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. The the language there is of bringing something that's low up to something that is high. It is emphasizing God's strength, God's power, God's mighty hand in bringing Christ up from the dead. God did this magnificent, powerful thing in raising Jesus from the dead. This is a, a picture of God's power. And the, the application, implication in our life is this. If God can do the hard thing of bringing Jesus up from the dead, bringing me all the way to glory is relatively light. Right? This is the God of peace who brought Jesus from the dead. I have utter confidence that he can bring me all the way through this life. Another thing under the stability of God's peace, God's peace means his blood is over you. His blood is over you. We already talked about this a little bit, but you see there a little reference 
who brought from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood. Once again, if we were to go back to Hebrews 9, 13 through 14, we see Jesus is able to offer his his death once and for all, eternally through the Spirit. It is eternally remembered before God. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. It's superior to any other sacrifice that has ever been uh, produced. And his sacrifice is precious, too, because he died himself, the eternal, perfect Son of God himself. And and Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says that through this he makes propitiation for the sins of his people, because he did this once for all perfect sacrifice for sin. Propitiation is a big word, and it means to satisfy something. To cover something. It is the same word that was used in the Old Testament in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the cover that went over the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus Christ is the great satisfier, the coverer of the wrath of God for you. He paid the price. All of God's righteous, holy wrath was poured out on him. God's wrath was fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. I just heard this sermon quote by Steve Lawson. It was amazing. He says this, and this is very true. He says this, there is no sin, no sin that will not, that will not receive the full force of the wrath of God. There is no sin ever committed that will that will not receive the full force of the wrath of God. Every sin will either experience the wrath of God in the person who has sinned or in the person of Jesus Christ who satisfies God's wrath through his perfect sacrifice. The question that you're left with is, who's going to suffer for your sins? Will it be Christ's suffering or your suffering? No sin will go unpunished. God will mete out wrath for every sin. We also see uh, the strength of God's peace means his new covenant work is inside of you. And, and just kind of, we're kind of picking up a few little bits and pieces here, but notice that by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, of course, in Hebrews, he's ma- been making a lot, a lot a lot of business about the eternal covenant and how it is so much better than the old covenant. The old covenant was the covenant that Moses made with the people of Israel, and God never intended for that covenant to be the end-all, be-all. It was to be a picture of the better one to come. Matter of fact, while he was giving the covenant to Moses, he was, in that moment, promising the better covenant that was to come. What is this covenant? What does this new covenant produce? It produces internal ability. It's the covenant that makes you able to obey and enjoy and be with God forever. The Old Testament, Old Covenant couldn't do that. But notice what he says in Hebrews 8, verse, uh, chapter, 10, uh, chapter 8, verse 10. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, uh, it is this, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God's new covenant is to send his Holy Spirit into our lives and enable us to obey from within. 
and to keep us in his love, to keep us in his grace. Because if you think about it, if, if your peace is contingent upon your obedience, your ability to follow and obey God, that is bad news, right? Because I can't obey God. I don't have the strength in myself to obey God. I'm going to have a very peaceless life if it all depends on me. And that is why the new covenant is such glorious good news, because he, through the power of his Holy Spirit, comes inside of me and enables me to believe and obey him, not perfectly in this life, but wonderfully all the same. You are unable You are unable in yourself, but the new covenant makes you able, gives you the ability. Another thing about the strength, the stability of God's peace, God's peace means his rod and his staff are beside you. His rod and his staff are beside you. Notice what he says, the great shepherd of the sheep. God comes beside you in the person of Jesus Christ and is with you regardless of where you are in life. Matter of fact, the Old Testament often speaks of God as a shepherd. Psalm 23 is obviously the the favorite verse, and it talks about, uh, even if I'm in a very difficult place, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. A little background information, if you didn't know, rod and staff are different things. A staff was what a shepherd used to lead the sheep. The, the staff was how he walked, but also how he would guide the sheep and kind of hit them where they needed to go when they needed to go somewhere. That was a staff. It was a shepherd's tool to lead the sheep. A rod was what the shepherd used to beat off the enemies who tried to eat the sheep, wolves and things like that. So, you know, wherever you are, if you have the great shepherd, not just any old shepherd, but you have the great shepherd who is with you, this brings incredible stability to your life. And this is the peace of God. Ultimate peace is Jesus as my shepherd. And let's look at another thing, one final thing in this benediction for for understanding God's peace. The last thing, the assurance of God's peace. We've talked about the need for God's peace. We've talked about the gift of God's peace. We've also we've also talked about the stability of God's peace. But let's talk about the assurance of God's peace. Why is God's peace so wonderful? We've hinted at it already, but let's just talk about it a little bit more. Uh, what is God doing in you to promote peace, to promote sanctification? What is the blessed assurance that you know God will bring about peace in your life? What should cause you to praise Him with all of your might? Well, you should be, number one, assured by God's perfect equipment. Number one, be assured that God has the tools that can enable you to make it all the way. Notice what he says there in verse 21. This is really the thrust of his prayer in 21. May the God of peace equip you with every good thing that you may do his will. Equip, make you fully supplied, you could say. Uh, Bring something into its proper order. God is perfect. God has the perfect equipment to bring you all the way. And notice what he says, may he equip you with every good. Notice what he says there, every good. That seems to imply that there is nothing that you need in life 
that is outside his equipment arsenal, right? God is the all-in-one-stop shop for your sanctification, peace, needs. Everything good, he has the equipment to produce in your life. And notice also where his perfect equipment hits you. It's right where you need. He is, verse 21 again, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This is not him distantly from afar sending a a care package to you, hoping you get it. He is inside of you. His sufficient equipment is working inside you to do everything that he desires of you. His sufficient work inside you is by the new covenant and then from uh, the new covenant through the Holy Spirit. All of these wondrous things and God's power is at work in you. There's great assurance of that. God has perfect equipment right where I need it inside of me. But there's another assurance here. Secondly, be assured by God's perfect closer. Some of you are baseball fans, Yankee fans, sadly. A closer is someone in baseball that is supposed to finish them off. To to close the deal, to stop them from gaining any more points. He's supposed to end the game. He, in real estate, is supposed to be the agent who brings all of the business transactions to an end so that everything is, is completely covered and finished to the satisfaction of all parties. And now notice this. All of, all of God's peace in your life is brought to you through a certain agent, a closer in your life. And it's directed towards you, not because God ultimately loves you, but because God ultimately sees you in Christ and God uses Christ to close the deal on you. The reason you have assurance in God's peace is because you belong to Jesus Christ. Notice the language there. Through Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right down there in verse 21. Through Jesus Christ. You belong to Christ. And also, more significantly, he has made himself, he has condescended himself to belong to you as your high priest. That means all of the graces that are yours from eternity past and God choosing you are because you were found in Christ. It means all of the graces that you receive at the cross and God's wrath not being poured out on you, but on him, are because you are in Christ Jesus. It means all of the graces that you presently enjoy, as Jesus is your current high priest praying for you, are because you belong to Christ, and he has made himself to belong to you. Christ is your current high priest praying you all the way to the end. He is the closer who is going to finish the deal perfectly. It says in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, because he always lives to make intercession for them, to pray them all the way into heaven. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Notice, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. That means his ministry towards you, for you, also never changes. Notice he is the closer of the deal. He's praising you all the way to heaven, but he is invested in you because he died to purchase your pardon And he wants to bring you all the way to the end. 
all of God's equipment inside of you is yours ultimately because you belong to him. And because he belongs to you. That song we sang, Hail the Day, sums it up. Though he dwells beyond the stars, his redeemed are on his heart. Even now he intercedes. Jesus cares for all of our needs. And there's one more thing I want you to be assured by. Be assured by God's perfect motivation. He is not motivated to bring peace in your life because of how good you are doing today. He is motivated by a perfect motivation that will never change. He's working his pleasure in us. His power is at work in us. He's invested in us. Jesus Christ belongs to us. Why? What is motivating God? You see it right there at the end of the benediction. To whom be glory forever and ever. That's an amazing thought. God has hitched the wagon of your sanctification and peace to his own glory. And he will bring it to pass. Your peace positionally in the past, in Christ Jesus, was for his own glory. Your peace progressively in the present as you increase in holiness is for his own glory. Your peace perfectly and experientially in the future for eternity is for his own glory. And that brings you great peace. God will bring it to pass. What should you do? What should your response be to this benediction for peace? Well, you should confess your need for God's peace, right? I do not have God's peace. I do not have God's peace in my life right now, and I need God's peace. I have evidence after evidence after evidence in my heart, in my mind, in my life, that I am outside of God's peace. I need your peace, O oh God. And then you should receive God's gift of peace in Christ Jesus. You should receive it as a gift. You should confess your sin to God and then say, I have nothing to offer. I can't work enough to please you. But I believe that you will freely give your peace, your eternal satisfaction over my soul freely to me in Christ Jesus receive God's gift of peace. And then you should, you should also respond even right now in rejoicing in the stability of God's peace, right? Nothing can shake me of God's peace. I can have joy in every situation because God's peace is stable. It's firm. It's fixed. And then you should also submit and trust in God's pursuit of peace in you even when life is hard you should submit and trust god that he knows what's best that he is disciplining you for the peaceful fruit of righteousness to increase in your life you should submit and trust in god and then finally you should delight you should delight in the assurance of god's peace you are committed to my peace and you also want to get glory and fame from my peace Right before we sing one last song, 
Once again, do you have God's peace? Is peace something that is happening in your life, increasing in your life because God's sanctification is in your peace or in your life? This is what this glorious song, this praise to God, promises and offers. But you have to receive it. You have to get on your face and receive it by faith. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for um, this time, this wondrous passage about your peace, and I pray that that would be increasing in our life, and we would be after it and seeking it, not by works to please you, but by faith and trust in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.